da 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 do What's up, dude? What's up? We'll give you the, the cheers, the coffee cheers. Mm. Storyville Coffee, future sponsor. Ah, who said ding? Good stuff. Ding. Does that mean that just dinged? You did. I don't want to ding. Broke, Turn broke, off the ding. Yeah. What's up, everybody? Thanks for coming back or being here for the first time. Howdy. I have a question for you. Bring the it. The song that just played of yeah. yours. Uh, the uh, intro the music. Intro music. Song called Cage. Great song. I think there's an award for that song back there somewhere. Isn't there? Don't hide it. It's in the way back behind <laughs> your speakers. <laughs> it's complicated. That's not an award for the song. They they called the the first No. One of the Broken City shows, Broken City Percussion was called Cage. They used that song though. It was Don't try initially, to downplay it. Come on. <laughs> initially partially inspired by that song and then they did not end up using any of the song. Oh, what? But what about the was it rhythms from the song in the show? I don't even think that. It was more like the concept and then actually Mike was sitting in here on the couch and looked at that art piece of mine up there that has the big this the cow backbone, yeah. Cow head guts. The cow spine. <laughs> and uh <clears throat> Nope, I just said it myself. I think that might have been when he was inspired for the the show Spine. And then Cage was also like Rib Cage. It was all kind oh, okay. of mixed together. There's like the creative process is nutty with with that stuff. It's like Dude. a million things and they're pulling from my catalog to get inspiration. Sometimes they use songs, sometimes they don't. Sometimes. Oh, that's cool. But anyway, so what, what was... Do we need to... Hold on. Do we need to explain? I think probably a lot of question. listeners know what Broken City Percussion is. Should we explain it just in case? What is it? Yeah, the quick... So the quick description is, is Broken City Percussion. They're like a... Um, I think they're in world class. It's like a... It's a competitive percussion ensemble, mm. and they're in, like a lot of these kids will be in high school doing it, and then when they get out of high school, there's a couple options. There's drum corps you can do in the, mm. until I Competition. think you're, yeah, I think you age out at 22 years old. Oh, really? Yeah, and then there's the independent winter percussion, mm. which is for people when who it's are, snowing. there's mostly 18 to 20. When you're wearing a parka <laughs> and you're playing a bass drum. Yeah. Got it. Winter. That's all part of it. Winter Nam, Summer Nam. Okay. Anyways, yeah. For eight people who are mostly eighteen to twenty-two years old, do that. Yeah. And it's sort of a way to. And that starts as drum drumline. Yeah. High school drumline or whenever they. Yeah, they I think start. it's pretty rare that somebody would actually be <clears throat> in the winter percussion that hasn't been indoctrinated into that whole world of. Yeah, it's a whole arts. world, man. I, I fun fact. Yeah. I've told you this before. I actually did drumline in high school for one. I don't even think it was a full year, but I had friends that were, well, I was actually the drummer that was in the band that I was in in high school, uh-huh. our, our metal band. He was a really, he's a really great drummer, still is, but he was in drumline in high school and he talked me and a couple other friends that were also in that band, like to, to join the drumline. He's like, dude, it's a free, it's basically just a free um, uh, class, like a free period Okay. We can just go in there and do whatever we want. And he was a, he was a little Milton about it, like most drumline people are. Yeah. He made me play snare, and I was like, oh great, this is so <laughs> so hard. All the rudiments and stuff, I can't play any of that anymore. I could barely do it back then. But I remember we'd practice on the same snare drum. Yeah. If I screwed up, he'd smack my sticks. <laughs> smack. <laughs> do it right. Like, oh, so yeah. hard. It's an intense little subculture. Yeah. So I got a I got a, a little glimpse of it. And those guys are amazing. And so, so I knew a little bit about Drumline when I first saw 
yeah. Broken City. Those guys are amazing, dude. I mean, that's like top of the top of the game right there, right? Those competitions they do. Yeah, they're in like kind of the the top class of, you know, like the older people doing it, older kids, the 18, 19, 8, 20, 22, mm-hmm. 20, you know how the numbers go in order like that? Oh, is that that's how numbers work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still need more coffee. <laughs> the <number. laughs> but yeah, they're, uh, they've been the top few of the world the last handful of years. World. Yeah. They do, um, finals are in Dayton, Ohio, and it's like a, it's in a big sports arena, and there are mm-hmm. lines that fly in from Japan and that's all over the place. To I know about Blue Devils. Compete. Yeah, so that's drum corps. That's drum the corps. summer. Okay. The I summer know about version. that from, I have a couple of friends that after we did it in high school, it became like really into it. My buddy Chris, Chris Wolf, what's up? I know he's listening. He told me he was listening. Um, I sent him, what was the thing I did? I came over and did a vocal for something and sent it to one of those, was it, it was Blue Devils, right. right? Yeah, I told Chris right away. I was like, it was either Blue Devils or RCC. I can't remember what, probably Blue Devils. It was uh, With or Without You. Yeah, Jim I just Wonderlit. sang the vocal track and then they flew it into their show or something. And then yep. then later I saw a video of it and I was like, yeah, that's, I'm in the show. <laughs> yeah, maybe somebody out there will will know. It's one of... Um, cool. Jim Wonderlich's lines. I'll have to find out which. Yeah. But um, that was anyway, you had a question about Cage. Was that the question? <clears throat> That's it. <laughs> All right. I'm done. I wanted to ask you about the award. No, I wanted to ask you about that song because so cool in the intro. All right, this is my impression of it. What is that? Is that you just slapping your knee? Did you just put a mic on your pants? <laughs> pants mic? <laughs> no. Lapel mic? You know what's funny pants? is Mike actually was doing that on his pants and said, Cage... The other day, I'm like, it's not pants. It's pant? a bag. <laughs> One pant? No, it is a, a Costco-sized bag of snap peas uh, that my mom gave me. Like, she had seen that I was, like, eating them one day. They're super <laughs> addictive, too. They're, like, they call them snap peas, but really it's oh. just, like, a chip that's in the shape of a pea. Okay. And, and so and she bought me this, like, big bag of them. Oh, my God, this is going to make me <laughs> so sick. Them. But it was sitting in the studio, and I went over to it, and I was like, psh, ooh. I'm, with I'm the drumstick? I hit it like with my hand, and I'm like, oh. ooh, that's a cool like texture. Um, so yeah, I threw it in front of a mic, got some drumsticks, and so that's like- So a, it was with drumsticks. A, I believe it was with drumsticks, maybe really? mallets, and then- Dude, it's so weird, because it just I, you just picture a guy slapping his knee. Why don't you just do that? That's not the right texture, Here. dude. <laughs> Way off. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. I did it not had like a, it. you know, because you hit the bag. This is what's happening mm-hmm. in like milliseconds of time. Yeah, slow-mo. You hit the bag on the outside, and then you crush it in, and you start to hit some snappies, mm-hmm. and then you start to break the snappies, and then it stops. So it's like... Are you calling every, them snappies? Snappies. <laughs> <laughs> not snap peas. I don't have time for snap that space, dude. <laughs> so it's a really interesting... Shh, sh- sh- on every single yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right here, you just got panting and skin. You're not like breaking an actual snappy. Couldn't you put the snappies in your pants and then? That I do. Yeah, yeah. but just that's for, just for fun though. Yeah, just that's on, not for recording. Yeah, on the weekends I just okay. do that. Interesting. So that's the intro. Snappies. Mm-hmm. Snap. Sorry, snappies. And I don't know if they ever go away. No, that yeah, I may have filtered them throughout, but yeah, I think they go through the whole song. The other thing about that song too is, uh, I wanted this really vacuumous. <clears throat> dry drum sound mm-hmm. which is sort of like mm-hmm. when I was younger 
that type of drum sound, I would have thought it was stupid. Mm, I know exactly what you mean. No air, just... Yeah, and very like not rim shots, very you mm-hmm. know center of the drum, playing quiet but intense, and I wanted there to be no sense of space, almost like it was yeah, somebody yeah. drumming quietly and the it, life just sucked out of the thing. out in the solar yeah. system somewhere. So I <laughs> went in to the drum room and found a huge blanket and put it over my head and over the drums. Wait for what? To record the drums. So I put a mic oh, okay. up kind of by my head, and then I had the the drums close mic'd and a blanket covering all of us. And it was like dampening the... <laughs> me, the hi-hats, the snare, the kick. And the you know the blanket was like draped over the hi-hats too. So it was like muting them. Whoa. And then I played with mallets. Why is that to be over your head though? Because for because so I had like a, you're part of the... Well, I had an overhead mic. And if, oh. if it's open to the room, you're getting slap back from the room. You're getting the sound of the room. Yeah. I wanted to be able to turn that up and only get... So it's cutting off basically... It was like... Basically, a real life low pass filter or high pass filter. Yeah, which one? Whichever one lets the <laughs> yeah L- low pass. So it was like cutting the high end right. down in terms of the reverb you might get from compressing the overhead mic. Yeah, you'll end up getting more ambience. So I wanted this really tight thing. So I'm like under a blank going by yourself. I'm just picturing you by yourself in the studio, like with a blanket oh, yeah. over you. It looked like a hall, like a ghost, <laughs> a bad ghost through this costume. window. I don't know if you could, the camera can see that, but that's the drum kit through that window. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, the live room. I would just love to have seen a just a shot, just a video know. of you. Just, oh, I'll put this over my head, and then it's like you can see the <laughs> you can see the blanket like kind of coming up when you hit the symbol. I should have cut eyes out in a real ghost <laughs> costume, but it really okay. it worked. Interesting. It's the only time I've ever done that. Sounds killer. And then the guitar comes in. Yeah. What guitar was that? I believe that telly? was my telly. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is not here, right? Is that in no, the that's, studio? No, that's, that's in Julian. Anyways, amazing. boring details. <laughs> this is the stuff that I like. So <laughs> when I hear a podcast, I want to hear talk. I want to hear boring details. But we'll stop, we'll stop with that. I'm a treasure trove of those. <laughs> I love your boring details because they're recording-related boring details. Speaking of boring details, here comes a segment called Boring Details. <laughs> and the, here's an example of boring detail through the eyes of my father. So the other day I was talking about, I think he asked me what I had been doing or something. And I was like, oh, I was mixing the song. And it's like, oh, I remember he was like, this is probably going on maybe 10 years ago, but he was over here helping put some cabin cabinets in on the, in our hallway pops. This is when the studio is in the front house. Oh yeah. And Andy and I were working on a mix and he was in the hallway working on these cabinets for probably like four hours or something. And he's like, you guys played this one section of the song probably a thousand times. And he's like, it was driving me crazy. Uh-huh. I could not imagine you like doing that. That's part of what you do is just listen yeah. over and over. What is going on? Like, I could do not that? do it. And I'm like, well, we're not listening to the same thing. Right. You're I'm not like, listening to everything, which is what he's hearing. Just the same, like he's hearing the whole picture. Right? Yeah. And my dad's in, you know, he was a, a refinery <laughs> designer, like nuclear refinery engineer. Whoa. And Fancy early on. dad. Right. Fancy I didn't dad. know that about your fancy dad. Uh, yeah, he's, he's pretty fancy. Wow. 
He worked on a project too that was like that never got off the ground, but it was about a sprinkler system for the <laughs> space shuttle. So when it took off, oh. it would actually cool down and put out all the fire. So they didn't hopefully oh. didn't have to actually rebuild the um, the liftoff apparatus that holds the space shuttle because it basically it blows it away every time. Whoa. This is back in the 80s. Oh, the actual thing that's on the ground. The part that's on the ground. Yeah, it's so crazy when you watch a, um, one of those old space shuttles. It's just a ex- huge explosion. Just, yeah. Ooh, and there's it's a mushroom cloud and then the thing. Ooh. I just remember that some one of his team members had created this like cartoon of a space shuttle and it had a bunch of dudes hanging off a space shuttle with hoses and stuff like they were going to like... <laughs> Put up yeah, fire. it was like a cartoon version of what they were working on. But so I was like, no, it's uh, it's as if when you're looking at, let's say you're looking at one s- couple square inches of a design, right. you're thinking like, okay, what's the functionality? What's the aesthetic? Does it, does it make sense? What's this going to look like in real life? You're like looking at all these different layers behind mm-hmm. and somebody might just see you staring at one thing for sure. a super long time in your drafting table pre-computer. Mm-hmm. So... It's weird just to think about his perception was you guys are just yeah. listening to the song over hear. and over. And I'm like, He's also no. not in the room, too. If you were outside of the, of the studio and you heard the same, you might think that, too. Completely. Not, you don't even know, first of all, you don't know what you're, detail you're looking at, but also you're just hearing it from outside the room. Yeah, the further you get away, the more simplified it <laughs> seems. But also just, that's one of my favorite things about about music, and I think it's what, when I think about the perceiving things like when when i'm working on a mix listening to a song a thousand times there's there's a small percentage of the time that i'm i'm listening to it in one way like Mm. for the the whole thing like Mm -hmm. trying to listen to it as a whole and then Mm. then you dig in you're like okay now i'm going to listen to it for um depth and width and now i'm going to listen to it for just the drums and now just the guitars and now um, overall impact and you're you know can you do that it up and turning it down is it easy for you to toggle back and forth with that mentally yeah once it's, especially once it's done i only ask that because i've had so many recording experiences where you obviously especially if you're singing and you're listening to your voice and you're mm-hmm. like you just tend to you tend to like really concentrate on that and then once the song's done it's almost like you have to force yourself to just listen to it zoomed out anymore because it's mixed now and there's no point in obsessing mm. over details or listening to this and that. You you have to listen to it like other people to hear it, right? Which is as a, like your dad was hearing it as a whole. Yeah. That's hard to kind of, at least for me, it's hard to toggle back and forth between focusing on details of a song that I was a part of and then zooming out and seeing the whole thing. Yeah, it's, it's Do you have trouble with that, or is that, am I just well? I would say it? that it's been. I don't know if it was incredibly conscious, but I know that my goal has been to get better at being able to just flip it like a switch mm-hmm. in terms of what what part of the mix I'm focusing on, and then it's right brain, left brain activities like right. listening to the how how the sonics are affecting the emotion of the song yes, and then how that's working on every instrument and then how each mm-hmm. instrument is interacting and then... Is one taking away from the Yeah, you have like... Because you have like sonic real estate so there's mm-hmm. there's only so much you can put in every frequency bef- before you start to overload the frequency or get 
too much interaction in a bad way or there's ways to mush it together and that's on purpose. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to sort of zoom in, zoom out, zoom over, zoom sideways, like all these dimensions in a way is something that I've been just like working on my entire life. And I'll work on it forever until I die. So there's one thing that I, and I probably everybody does this, um, that's in the studio with big speakers and the artist is there and you're tweaking, 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 you're recording. And then at one point you go, let's hear it. And then you crank the speakers up. And then it, and that's, it's like, that's the point where you click over to now we're listening to the whole thing, right? Cause you want to feel what the song's doing. Mm-hmm. So the speakers go up and then you can hear there's more bass response or whatever the speakers do. Is that, is that like the time when you click over? Okay. Now we're going to, we're going to back up. We're going to zoom out and turn it up and see what it feels like. <laughs> well, I'm constantly doing that and I tend to mix pretty loud. Yeah. I Some want, guys do real quiet, right? I just love whisper quiet. I love the impact of mu- of music. I think from being a drummer, yeah, I'm attracted to the actual <clears throat> physical. I don't know. There's something about the the visceral, the kind visceral of feeling aspect. of that's, that's the, the song. So, I like to mix in such a way where it sounds good at all volumes, but that yeah. especially that you can crank it and right. it doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a double edged sword because. It's not healthy to to listen sure. really loud, and these speakers in particular too. These they're called <laughs> they're called PMC speakers, which stands for Professional Monitor Company. Sounds That's like horrible. A, it sounds like a company being a cartoon, like Acme speakers, <laughs> I mean, Professional yeah. Speaker Company, <laughs> Monitor Company. So, but they're incredible speakers, and they actually told me when I bought them, like get out, get an app, a really good decibel meter app. Oh, so you don't blow your face and off? check it, because these speakers have no... They have such low distortion mm. that you'll be listening over 100 decibels and you not even know. notice it, Whoa. because they're not distorting. Usually, mm-hmm. the, like, the red alert sign is like, yeah, ooh, yeah. it sounds bad, but these will just sound... And sure enough, I'm consistently... I'm surprised your hearing's still I'm good. Often, it's, you're, not only, you're not only doing that, but you're also a drummer, and you've been a drummer forever. Yeah. Drummers can't hear. Because they smash cymbals so And the other day I woke up after a full day of mixing and I was driving in my car (laughs) with the music too loud and just everything was, no, it was just everything sounded dark. I was like, ooh, Ooh. something. Could be a head cold or something. And I kept checking all the different mixes that I knew how they sounded and I'm like, everything's equally dark. I hope it comes back. I got that scared feeling like, did I lose a certain frequency? Yeah. (laughs) Did I lose the 10K in my ears? Because I've heard there's <laughs> stories of people who are like, yeah, one day I just went click and then I couldn't hear. Oh, that's so scary. But it came, today I was uh, <laughs> I was driving here listening to the same things going on. Yeah, that sounds it's back exactly how I thought it did. But there was a full day there and I was, Oof. yeah, it's rough. But what were we talking about? So, yeah, perceiving music. So, this is what happened. Musics. After just <laughs> after thinking about that and talking with my dad, I'm like, we're listening to all these different things and for different reasons and um, at the end of the day you don't feel like you've listened to it that many times and then you want to mm-hmm. listen to it on different speakers and that's like yeah. hearing a completely different thing mm-hmm. I had this one experience that got me thinking about the difference between the way musicians hear lyrics and then all the different mm-hmm. kinds of music based artists like people who focus mm-hmm. on mixing or producers or singers or right. one of the classic things which is a good little example is is that when you work with a band or an artist and especially a band 
you can just guarantee the bass when they players hear the mix, be like, turn the bass up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, not I shouldn't say bass. The it's guitar, guitar player. It's always the guitar. It's always us guitar players. Can you I sh- get the little more of that? <laughs> it usually is. It's basically just m- more me. More of me. Drums louder. Whatever. You're the drummer. More of me and less of you. Yeah. And, uh, but, so I had this experience where I was, you know that that state where you're like falling asleep and, and you're, you're awake, but you're not, and it's kind of a nice stage to be in. I was watching, I think it was like the Hall of Fame induction ceremony, uh, music Hall of Fame. There's, there is such a thing, right? The There's Hall a of few different Rock ones. and Roll? Rock and... I think it was Rock and Roll Hall of, of Fame. Yeah. And that was on, and I like, eh, and then fell asleep, but then woke up and wasn't awake, but I was watching it, and it was... Stevie Wonder and Sting and a bunch of other people, like a all-star band, but I just remember particularly Stevie Wonder and Sting were on stage. Higher Ground? What were they playing? I think I saw this. Really? I can't remember the song. There was a few different songs, but yeah, Higher Ground, I'm th- pretty sure was one. I think they and Stevie Wonder doing Message in Amazing. Bottle. Still. Yeah. Right. But what happened is I woke up and was like half asleep watching. I was like, this is the greatest live performance I've ever heard and I was freaking out every quietly I felt like everything was perfectly in tune and like I was having this experience of music that was just I couldn't believe it and because I was falling asleep I had like DVR'd it Mm. and woke up the next day Mm. played it and it was it was like hearing it as a different person Mm. the performance was good but I was just hearing flaws everywhere and like Oh, that's yeah. a good performance, but yeah, they sing a little sharp, sing a little flat. The sonically, huh. this, that, like hearing all the stuff like I normally do. Because you were the night before, I had gotten this part of my brain wasn't turned on. I was mm-hmm. half asleep, right? And I experienced it. The analytical part might have been shut down. For yeah, so the analytical part and some sort of perception thing was just off mm-hmm. from what you would usually analyze, at least. Yeah, <clears throat> and I looked back and I was like, if this is the way. It's possible to hear music all the time. I yeah. would, it'd be a whole different experience. Yeah. It's the blessing and the curse, I think, of, of right. hearing it and understanding it. And I think, take that to the extreme. When I hear really intense, harmonically intricate, unbelievable, like jazz mm. that's, you know, we're talking, um, some of the most intense, like Miles Davis stuff or mm. um, sax players coming to mind. What's the guy? Uh, Ultimate dude. Dizzy Gillespie? No, he's he didn't trumpet. Play sax, <laughs> play trumpet. Dang it. I'll edit that out. A couple so of idiots. Like Major editing on this one. Trump, what, a trumpet? I don't know, but you're doing it with a guitar pick. Giant steps. What the hell is his name? Oh. Computer. I don't know, dude. Drawing a blank. Write in giant steps, and then I'm going to feel like an idiot. Giant step. Giant steps. Sax. John Coltrane. John Coltrane. Coltrane. So they're an absolute genius, and when they're improvising, you know, over changes, but then they can take the changes somewhere else, and mm-hmm. everybody's hearing exactly where the changes are going, and right. like giant steps is a giant super step. famous... What? It's a giant step. It's a giant step. For mankind and sax kind, <laughs> the 
those changes are happening so fast. Like chord, 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 chord. And there's key changes all the time. And soloing over that is one of one of the things that a lot of jazz musicians like strive to be able to completely improvise over those changes and be hitting all the changes. So it's like every one of those chords is like you can play certain notes over them mm-hmm. to be really navigating them correctly yeah. while phrasing, while doing something yeah, that aren't unique. common tones that work over every chord, but you, yes. you can hear the chord changes. So I'm not particularly <clears throat> gifted in that area where I can, like I've known some people that you can go up to a piano and play a chord cluster of like eight notes and they can pick out all the notes that mm-hmm. are you're playing. And I've tested some people on this before. And when I hear a chord cluster, I can like pick a few notes that I could sing with it that work. Mm-hmm. But I tend to immediately hear it as a, a feeling mm-hmm. and a timbral thing. I see it really intensely timbrally and then I feel an emotional thing like, oh, it's if I sing this note or this melody over that cluster, it's going to feel right. Mm-hmm. But the first place, like I don't see like an array of notes in my head. Mm-hmm. Like when I hear rhythms, I, I I can kind of see the rhythm written or really technically do it. And then sonically, I'll see it in such a way where I'll be like, oh, there's there's a lot of this frequency, whatever, down to the number. But harmonically, it hits me more as a feeling mm-hmm. first. So I've had to develop that side of, of my harmonic, I guess, perception. But mm-hmm. some people just have that. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that the people that have that intense perception of, of, of music harmonically tend to not have it as much when it comes to the mixing side or the timbral side. Mm. They're focused on notes and not on tone tone as much. It's like a clarity thing. Mm-hmm. And then there are, of course, geniuses maybe that kind of see the whole picture of music really intensely on every level, but we're all trying to kind of fill in the gaps and have sort of natural yeah. gifting. But perception-wise, there's probably this really sweet spot where... You're hearing music for what it is. It's in its totality. Mm-hmm. And that's our goal as musicians is to be able to actually access that perception that we can pull back and go, is this all working? Am I lost in the nuts and bolts too much? Because mm-hmm. that's the worst thing is when, you, Get when you're that guitar player in the band, it's like, turn me up. I'm the only right. thing that matters here. Right. As opposed to somebody, the great musicians. Sometimes who, they're right though. Which is, sometimes they're right. Sometimes <laughs> the guitar player needs to be louder. Okay. Like, sometimes you forget to mix them. The right way. Confirmation bias. <laughs> no, yeah. It depends on the music. No, yeah. Yeah, no. You're not going <laughs> to yeah, you're right. to that. You're always right. Because right. you're a songwriter who plays guitar. <laughs> That's right. But I've also done guitar sessions where I've been that guy. Like, let's just maybe bump it up a couple dB. Can we pan it hard right? <laughs> Sometimes it ends pan? up being right because you don't realize the... That's one of the fun things of mixing is actually throwing things at yourself. You try to learn mm-hmm. to be multiple people. Mm-hmm. Like, what if I was the guitarist? And then you just sort of like crank something that you would that you have buried in the mix That's for cool. some reason. Like two hours ago, you put it here. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll just take something and go like, and like reverse the oh cool the relationship just to between see what the happens. Two. And sometimes it'll just surprise me. Like, whoa, yeah. that's like a whole different feeling. Yeah, and that'll affect. Or I'll often do it. One of the great things about the digital technology and the ability to like have a plug-in like the one called uh, Trigger by Slate mm-hmm. where you can you have a drum sound like a snare or a kick and just fly in into this plug-in 
as many as I think six or more different samples and layer them and whatever. I'll be going through and just be like, I'm just going to try yeah. a completely different snare and just see yeah. if, you know, see if I'm somehow to too focused, you know. And here's another rabbit hole is that I'm obsessed with snare sounds. Being a drummer, also like... I don't think you have to be a drummer. You know what? Anecdotal story. When I remember being a kid and my sister had... That Zeppelin record, uh, can't remember what record it was, but I remember putting it in the tape player because we shared a bathroom and there was a little tape player in there. How sweet. And pushing play and listening because it's my, what my sister was listening to. At the time, when she was in high school, she was into Zeppelin. And I remember one of the first things I noticed that I thought was good, I was a kid. I was probably not even a teenager, probably like maybe 11, 12. Yeah. A kid. I remember thinking that the drum sounded good and it was the snare drum. Whoa. Like that, that was the thing that snuck, stuck out to me the most was the snare drum. And li- listening to it now, I kind of see what I was hearing because it's an, like John Bonham's snare drums always sound amazing. There's just like a night, like the perfect, to me, that's like the perfect snare drum for a rock sound, right? Yeah. And you know who it's got close to that, surprisingly? Like early Van Halen records have a very oh, similar Oh yeah, totally. Snare sound. <clears throat> Tommy Lee too. I was I was a Motley Crue fan when I was a kid, and I remember hearing Tommy Lee and thinking he's my favorite drummer. I didn't know anything about drums. I just knew he's the way a, it sounded. He's actually a really good. And drummer. he really is a good drummer. I heard so, Doctor Feelgood come on or Kickstart My Heart or yeah, something. He has a record. good feel. He does, yeah. And I didn't know that as a kid, but I loved the songs and Bob Rock's production. Obviously, right, it was amazing. But, but I drums. did notice the tone of the drums. I didn't. I couldn't tell you what they were doing, or I wouldn't know what was happening. But I knew that the sound was like something that I liked. And I always think about that because that just says so much about the emotion of the tone of an instrument in a song. Yeah. Even as a kid, I just, huh. And that was a definite, awesome that was a huge turning point in, in drum sounds when when those Zeppelin, mm-hmm. you know, room mic plus right. his playing plus his tuning, all everything that came together in that, yeah, magical. But when I, I was just doing, talking about this with one of my students the other day, um, for the first time, I think ever, somebody who hired me to to do a mix, actually, I invited them to come and just, he wanted to hang out and just watch me mix. And like most of the mixers I've worked with in the past, like when I've worked with Chris Lord Algae or Jack Joseph Puig on a few things. What did you do with uh, Chris Lord Algae? Um, the first thing we did was a Jeremy Camp record. Oh, he, he mixed, mixed some of our songs. Uh, Let It Fade was one that he mixed. Where I actually got in sort of a little bit of an argument with him. Where I just asked what? for something and he didn't want to do it. Really? I'll get to that in a second. Was he mixing super quiet? Because he's known to be a real quiet mixer. Both those guys do it the proper way, which yeah. I don't do. They I just all, heard Howard Benson say he does that too. They do it back and forth. I mean, because yeah. you can't... One of the things that Jack said when I was working with him... I worked with Jack Joseph on... Um, Your Jack stuff. Joseph Jingleheimer Schmidt. <laughs> on, uh, <laughs> is that his new name? <laughs> Why do, why do those mixers have three names? Oh, they yeah. know, only only people who assassinate presidents have yeah, three yeah. names. Assassinators. Assassinators. John Wilkes Booth and et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Um, he said when you when you listen too loud, you can't hear um pitch and feel. Mm. Feel? Like uh, uh drum wise? Yeah, like the intricacies of how things are interacting yeah. in terms of feel like in time 
and then you can't distinguish pitch which, with as much accuracy, uh, which means that on some level you're not experiencing timbres on with enough ad- accuracy also. Interesting. Which explains why you can be at a show where the music is cranked yeah. and hear an iPhone recording of it and go like, whoa, I didn't realize the singer was that out of tune Tell me about there. As a, as a guy being in bands and touring mm-hmm. and then seeing videos the next night or the next day after that show, and you're like, oh, we sounded amazing. And then you hear it without the low end of the room mainly. Mm-hmm. You'll never get mm-hmm. that, at least not yet, on an iPhone. <clears throat> you just, oh, bummer, you know? Certain things stick out more because of the frequency range, I guess. Well, here's there's two reasons why that happened. I don't want to get off the snare drum thing either, but so I'll get I'll finish the snare drum thing, and then I want to talk about that pitch thing because okay. it's great. I went through it a crazy. Take a note. Can we can we take a note from that? Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Thanks. Just remind us later. Okay. No, we, there's a guy over there. Sit down. Okay. The uh, thing with snare drum is that the reason why snare drum is so important to me partially is because I'm just a drummer and obsessed with snare sounds and. But thinking about it, it's it's the one thing in the song that's happening the same most often. Oh, it's right, happening right. the same it's and the most often. Right, and it doesn't so change. If usually. that one thing doesn't suit the song or sound like it should, yeah, or you know, yeah, you're gonna cringe every two and four. Yeah, <laughs> everything else <laughs> most of the time is Changes. is varying, and at least in some yeah. way, this is the thing that's the same note. You know, like yeah, that's why I love when they when songs will switch up drum tones in the middle of a song for a different part or whatever. Oh, right, just instantly. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely something that in pop music is played around with a lot. Like mm-hmm. verses or snaps and choruses yeah, or sure. claps. Yeah, or yeah, right. Big snare, or whatever. But when I was rec- <laughs> I was mixing a song and it made me, you know, when somebody's watching you do something, you often do kind of lost in your own world mm-hmm. he's sitting right next to me watching um angel ramirez jr shout out uh he, <laughs> he had showed me this song acoustically one time like months and months before but when i pulled it up i realized how some of the things i do are kind of like don't necessarily make a ton of sense or require i had to tell him like okay you might start hearing things and be like that's oh, not right. Yeah, don't yeah. stop. Like, yeah. you know, I don't want you to panic. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and this is why. <laughs> this is why I mentioned those other big, the big mixer name guys. I wasn't just name dropping, but they're they won't let you come watch them mix because they don't want to hear you over their shoulder. Like, no, no, I don't like that thing. Yeah, and they're just like, they don't shut have up. To explain. I'm doing, I'm doing something here. Yeah, cooking the magic. Don't mm-hmm. look. Yeah. Um, first of all, they don't want to share their secrets. Usually, sure. And then second one is they just don't want somebody screwing with, you know, over their shoulder. So they'll call you when they're done and then it's time for tweaks. Yeah. And, but Angel's cool and I trust him and he just wanted to see. So I was kind of walking him through, like, I was like, ask me anything as I'm going. And then. Yeah. This is also part of your teaching program. Right. um, To some degree. Like this is sort of outside of it because we had other plans for our hours together this semester. But he's like, I want to hire you to mix something. So he, he came in and. I was like, just don't worry. But if you have a question, mm-hmm. and <laughs> and I, I'm like, I I start with the drums, and I just try to intuit. I literally solo up the drums, and I try to just intuit what what the drums should sound like based on the performance, and mm-hmm. without hearing the how they already the sound instruments. Yeah, mm. and I've heard a lot that the most common approach is Vocals. throw the faders up or listen to the rough mix first. 
Mm-hmm. That's what a lot of guys do. I've heard, I don't remember who it was, but they were saying that they only start with the vocals no matter what. Yeah. Just, just solo the vocals and start tweaking the vocal before they hear the rest of the song. Which I would I say there like, are two weird. main schools of thought, which is start with the drums or start with the vocals. We talked about that last podcast, right? You were saying the drums the and the vocals are the most important thing in the song or whatever, <laughs> and it's the foundation, and then the cherry on top is the vocal. And you were saying if you understand the relationship with those, then you can, yeah, you can get so, a better mix. Yeah, and even just in learning music, that it's we talked about that. Just It's cool to be able to sing a little and drum a little because it's sort of... Mm-hmm. And those are the two things where you can put all your physical energy into them. And the most like ancient instruments. And, and the most ancient. But yeah, and in some way, also as you know that the vocal is going to be a focal point for the most part. And then also as you're gain staging, which is a super important element mm-hmm. of mixing, is just sort of making sure that the... making sure, First of all, if you're tracking it, making sure you're recording at a nice level, you know, negative right. 10, negative 15 dB. And then as you go through plugins, making sure you're managing how loud that channel is and where the fader's at and then how that's feeding your mix bus. And Why then, do you have to start so low? Devil's advocate in your question. You always just want to... You're saying the negative only reason, 10 dB. You don't want the fader or whatever, the signal to go past... When you're recording. When you're recording. Yeah. Is that for adding In the old days... Later? When you're recording on analog, you're always battling signal-to-noise ratio. Mm-hmm. So you have... And the louder you get, the more the, the so noise So the lower you up. record, the more... Here's the noise. Here's how loud the noise is. If you record just a little above it, mm-hmm. then when you turn up that sound, you're turning up the noise the with noise it. too, yeah. So you got to record high enough to where if you turn that sound up, you're not turning up the noise to a point where you're starting to get a noisy recording uh-huh. with just hiss. That was an issue that you constantly had to deal with in the analog domain, recording to tape, and which I believe is why Dolby was invented, which like cut out the noise, oh. um, or at least one aspect of what Dolby is. So in digital recording, the signal-to-noise ratio is so low mm-hmm. that you can record a lot softer and not have to really worry about that as much. Mm. Um, but then you also want to record hot enough to where you have enough signal to work with, but not too hot because digital distortion is Mm -hmm. usually just a bad thing. Bad. So, and then it all depends on what you're using going in. Like if you're saturating a preamp, preamp, you know, and just a nice healthy middle ground is great because the worst thing, especially in the digital domain, is when you, let's say you've recorded everything really hot and then you have to turn everything down on the faders, let's say. Um, or it's just it's recorded so hot that it's hitting your plugin super hard, and then you're distorting yeah. the plugin. And then or, it's distorting the plugin. And a lot of plugins are designed to part of the design of the plugin, like especially modeling plugins, plugins mm-hmm. that are modeling old pieces of gear. Yeah, they're trying to actually model what it sounds like to go into the plugin hard, as if you're going into the piece of gear hard. Mm-hmm. It actually sounds different. It's getting more, you know, harmonic distortion or whatever, and the output. So a lot of those you can just turn you can actually turn the rest of the plugin off and just have the sound of going through the emulation, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so you know, now Pro Tools has a thing called clip gain where you can actually regardless of how hot it was recorded or soft, you can actually change easily change the size of the mm-hmm. waveform mm-hmm. in a way that's really great before you'd have to like put a gain plug in on it and apply it or put a and you can do that with a trim plug in, you can put that before your first plug-in or something and turn down the level there. Oh. Um, 
And trim is just a very simple plugin that just has gain up and down. Mm-hmm. So the important thing is, it's just, is that you need, when you're recording at around negative 10, negative 15, you have all those 10 or 15 decibels before zero. Mm-hmm. And once you record, let's say 10 tracks, that's all going to add up and mm-hmm. go eventually down to two. So you're just always managing it so that you're not hitting things harder than you want to or too low, but better better on the low side than the high side because mm-hmm. of the signal-to-noise ratio. You're not really having to worry about it as much in digital. Mm-hmm. But So that just becomes really important. And what, what were we talking about that got, got us about, into this? You were talking about Angel watching you mix. Oh, yeah. So I was just... <laughs> Kind of got off like twenty minutes. Ago. Major tangent. <laughs> it's me, it's my fault. I keep asking you questions. I want to know. I, mean, I have just, my own personal questions that have nothing to do with this podcast. <laughs> and I'm just going to sneak them in <laughs> every once in a while. It was just funny because I was working on the drums for over an hour, and, and I didn't even know what the song was. <laughs> you didn't hear anything else. I didn't hear anything else. Interesting. And you know, I'm like making all these decisions and working with all these plugins and really focusing on the kick drum sound, the snare. But I kept listening to what was recorded, and for some reason, they had chosen not to record a close mic on the snare. They had like a mid-side room mic, which hmm. had the most snare in it. And so I was kind of like, and he was said, like, I would want you to use some samples to kind of beef it up. And no whatever. snare mic? Yeah, was they had a mistake? No, they had just gotten a sound they liked oh, through... Cool. Just some Ringo stereo- Star style, where you just put like two mics over the head? Kind of. I mean, the they, had, they had a kick mic, they that had Tom mics, and they had stereo overheads and they had this mid side thing further away from like in front of the kit and they just decided that i mean a lot of the a lot of the song didn't have cymbals like he was just hitting kick and snare and they just liked that so i started picking like i heard the snare drum they had recorded worked with it a little bit and was like okay i think i have i have my own i always i make my own samples that's a whole other rabbit trail we can go down but I have all these different snare drums and I've recorded them in all different ways, hitting different volumes. And so I, I picked some snares that I had that were sort of in the, in the family of, of, of the snare sound he had. And I was like, okay, cool. Now I have a close mic version of that. Cool. So I started building this whole drum sound and deliberately, I was like, I like to be surprised by the music. Cause I don't, <laughs> if I heard the whole song, I might, it might narrow my thinking a little too much. I want to make some mistakes that I know I can change Okay. And see how much I can intuit. That's part of the fun of mixing. It's just sort of like you have this story that's being revealed to you and you can decide to start in the middle or you can... You You're can, just playing games with yourself. You're like, I'm going to pull a guitar in now. Just yeah. the drums and the guitar. And it's really fun. And like you see, you're tricking yourself into more creativity than maybe you otherwise would have. So cool. I'll get the drums done, then I'll pull up the bass and I'll be able to see from the attitude of the playing on the bass if I'd made some good drum decisions. Mm-hmm. And then I think the next thing I did is I went to the vocal. I was like, I want to understand, have I made the drums too yeah. punchy and aggressive and he's singing really quiet? And mm-hmm. is, or is that going to be, are those going to relate in a good way? Or am I pulling too much of the ear to the drums? And mm-hmm. so, what, so he just, it was just funny because it felt like, I felt um, sensitive to the fact like, that I might be disrespecting his song yeah. in some way. Like, I don't but if he wasn't here, hear. if he wasn't in the room, you would have done, that's what you would have done, right? Yeah. And you wouldn't have thought, oh, this guy might be feeling strange. Yeah, every step of the way. And there was a couple so, times where he, he, you know, he wanted to say something like, "Oh, j- just so you know that you know." Yeah. So like, when you pulled up the actual song after working on the drums, soloed, were you were you like in the wheelhouse or did it? Yeah, I was did in, it work? 
I was close, but I continued. <clears throat> the snare drum happened to be even more important than normal on that song because the whole verse was just a mellow, dark pad, mm. vocals, drums, and like a, you know, just do, 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 do bass. Mm-hmm. So th- Some YouTube the way bass? the snare felt was like, it was the thing in the mid-range, apart yeah. from the vocal, that was owning that space. So if it, mm. if it didn't have the right texture or was hitting too hard or felt like it was too dumpy and not hi-fi enough, dumpy. but if it was too bright and sizzly, yeah. like all those things, like that's <clears throat> another thing that, that I have to think. Um, JJP, Jack Joseph Puig for it, was, I learned a lot through, that was the one time where I had music that I had tracked and produced re- mixed by somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's it's a long own, story as to solo why. record you're talking about. Yeah, so he mixed the majority of my album that's called Fallborn, and it's called, it's a solo album called Fallborn, but it really represents the period of my band Fallborn, mm-hmm. which was like between 2006, 2007. Which up, broke up. up. Up to 2010. And then you had, to rele- you had to release it anyways. I just felt, yeah, because it, it was... Because I told you to. <laughs> it was just totally to. <laughs> Come on, bro. It was, it, all, it was all through 2009 that I was working with Jack, like once a month-ish or something, mixing those songs. Did you do that to learn secretly? Like, was a part of that because you wanted to learn No, I was from really him? hard-headed and didn't want to learn anything. Interesting. I just I always wanted that because <laughs> there are other artists that I like that I know mix their own stuff sometimes. And then mm-hmm. once in a while, you produce this next record with so-and-so. Yeah. And the next one is, there is solo again. And I always think, I wonder if they, part of it was they wanted to learn from that producer or they wanted to see how they would do it or how they would approach this record. I ended up getting them. there fairly quickly. But it was sort of, there was a curiosity there. Mm-hmm. Like when, sure. Yeah, that's all I mean, yeah. It was 2005 or 2006 when um, Chris Lord Algae had mixed the Jeremy Camp stuff. And then he all, he also mixed worked with him maybe five or six times, but he mixed hmm. Jesse McCartney's second record song we did oh, right yeah. where you want me. Then he mixed um, a lot. I think everything that we did on the restored album by Jeremy Camp, which is we produced half that record. Then he mixed the Let It Fade. Half? Then <laughs> yeah, <the> favorite half. <laughs> then he mixed uh, a few other things, and then Cherry Bomb, which is an all girl mm-hmm. rock band on Hollywood Records. And we produced the majority of that record, and he mixed that. And every every experience, I think we have worked with Chris at three different studios he was in. Oh, wow. The one he was in for the longest, and I think that was back when he had mixed like American Idiot, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. A Green Day. And then there was one in the middle where he was like renting a space up in the valley, and then now he's at his own sp- spot in Tarzana, which was previously like a historic studio. Hmm. And... It was interesting to see him kind of like every few years or something. And <laughs> so I'll tell the story. And what was the thing that I was thanking Jack for? Oh, the, the, when I heard him mix my tones, things I had recorded, right? it was Jack such or a huge, Jack, Jack, a huge learning experience because all the other stuff was stuff that Andy and I had recorded for other people. And mm-hmm. it was a little bit, it was still fascinating and awesome to hear like somebody else's take on it because we sure. always had rough mixes. Mm-hmm. And I was always a fan of Chris Lord Algae because he just got such great drum sounds. Yeah, and, huge sounds. Um, and Jack I was a fan of but knew less about him. And I would hear things that I loved and hear things that I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then mm-hmm. um, 
he's much more of a, I would say, chameleon mixed with mm-hmm. an. He has a much more artistic approach, meaning like he'll make choices that that. Blow, like, to me, when you mix some of my songs, I'd be I'd be like that is the opposite of mm-hmm. how I want it to sound. That's got to be now. Great. Granted, that's probably good to somebody mm-hmm. like objectively, but. I noticed in, I have tons of notes right now and then other yeah. ones he would nail it like the first song he mixed was the wrong side from the Fallborn record yeah. and it was just dude this is amazing that surprise I, major chord very <laughs> yeah. isn't that the one <laughs> <laughs> the, that song was killer and then he mixed Back to You was a, an amazing mix that mm-hmm. one when I compare <laughs> that to my rough mix that's where the learning happened I was like mm. wow how did he do that what happened and then I started to, it just ba- basically raised the bar on my mixing. It's like, if that's possible with my stuff, granted yeah. he has a th- you know, million dollar Neve console, but it, it's more than the gear. Sure. It ain't You're the tool, a, it's the it's fool. It's the fool. You're getting his perspective. One thing I was going to just interject real quick I, on that record, because I've heard a lot of your stuff for years, all of your stuff <laughs> for years. And I, the, one, the first thing I noticed on his mixes was um, some of the vocal effect treatments mm-hmm. like just some stuff that I, I never heard you do to your own voice like some slapbacks or right. certain things that was, I just thought it was really cool because it was interesting to hear your stuff mixed through someone else yeah and that's such a obvious thing up front the vocal treatment you he's know? especially good with vocals too um one of the main I probably the most like notes I've I gave him throughout that process was on drum sounds like I mm-hmm. He's not somebody who is famous for real punchy big drums. That's he, your thing. He yeah. does it. Chris Lord Algae is more the guy for punchy big drums. Yeah, fat punchy. Whereas Jack will just be like, you know what? I'm going to turn the hi-hats almost all the way down. I'm going to make the kick really thin, and the snare is just going to be real splatty, even though you gave him tracks that may have spoken, right. spoken to the opposite. Mm-hmm. But it'll just create a feeling, and he just he's like, that's all I care about is the song. Sure, that's great. And... So there was some times where, I mean, I would come in and the snare would just be like garbage, basically the opposite <laughs> of what I loved or intended. Yeah. And so I'd have to like, can you just make the snare literally sound like you're hitting concrete with a baseball bat? You know, like <laughs> I want, I don't ever want to lose the attack. And then yeah. to his credit, he's like, reaches right over, knows exactly what to do. Bing, bong, bing, bing, bong. And there it is. And then boom, like to the point where it could be too much, you know? Yeah. And there's another song where he made the cool. vocals so insanely bright that I couldn't believe it. And <laughs> I was like, man, if I had weeks to live with this, I might actually hear it his way and agree. But yeah. And then in other ways, one of the big things that, that I learned from him was that, and he said this, he said, the ear can really, or the brain, I guess, can really only focus on roughly three things at a time. At a time. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is cool. So, He's always thinking that way. And what and then, the listener is going to be hearing. Yeah, and where your attention is. So mm-hmm. often he would do things that were counterintuitive to somebody who's like in love with everything in the song. Because mm-hmm. one of the worst things you can do as a mixer is make everything sound good and important. At, when you solo it. Like, oh. I can solo the guitar and it's the most perfect guitar sound I've ever heard. So right. this then, everything sounds great on its own on its own and then you have everything trying to be the focal point at the same time and then what you have is this like wall of sound where everything's bright and everything's huge and it's all fighting for your attention yeah and then you 
it's like nothing gets your attention because everything's trying for it. Yeah. So nothing what he special. would do is he would make certain things, like I said, like on my song Blink, mm-hmm. um, which ended up as the last song on my Murder Yesterday record. It was the one song that I kind of pulled off the Fallborn uh, thing. Yeah. And uh, that was the song where he, we had theorized that song as being a real driving sort of eighth note, like, mm-hmm. for your blanket, it's gone. There's like hi-hats doing that mm-hmm. and then ride doing that. And there's guitars playing eighth notes and the piano's playing. It was a real driving song. Mm-hmm. And he turned the hi-hats almost all the way down and hmm. completely brought it into like a quarter note feeling song. Oh, wow. And made it, made it all about the boom, yeah. and the piano and made the vocal really huge and downplayed everything else. Huh. And at the end of the day, it was so much more the right thing. It yeah. just made the song all about the lyrics, all about the vocal. So cool. Brought out the timeless aspects, downplayed everything about it that could be considered Coldplay oriented or something. Yeah. Um, but so I realized like two big things is that he, what it did is it influenced the, the way I thought about how things interrelate in a mix. So Mm -hmm. I'll be willing to make certain things really dark so that your focal point is more simplified Mm -hmm. and that, um, and then also harmonic distortion. I could tell that what he was doing was really enriching things with subtle levels of distortion so that there was a lot more depth and bigness and like when i heard that done to tracks i had recorded it hearing what's possible all of a sudden it was like well now all i have to do is just push and push and push and get to the point where i'm hearing all those same layers of or of harmonic complexity how did he do that you said individually on individual tracks he would add some sort of gain all over the place yeah i mean he's got you know, he's got a real Fairchild, which is, you know, okay. over $30,000 for that compressor if you want to buy it. So he's just pushing that into that a little bit and distorting this, the... Yeah, so he's got time. that times a million. I mean, if you if everybody out there who doesn't know who Jack <clears throat> is, is Google Jack Joseph Puig, P-U-I-G, and you'll see pictures of him in the studio. And he's the guy who's known for having all the best and most sought-after gear from, like, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and mm. present. He's got everything that's mm. been his thing. Like, there are pictures of mm. him that are just ridiculous-looking because of the amount of gear Hardware. that he has. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he knows how to use it, and he comes from the old school where he can, you know, take that gear apart and know, like, oh, I'm going to replace the transformer. Like, he oh, actually wow. knows... Like the reason why they're called engineers because in the old school they were actually engineers. They knew how right, to take right. the board apart, and yeah. they were electronic engineers. Hmm. So he has some of that in him, and that's why he he has custom plugins that are modeling plugins for yeah. for the Fairchild and the um, which I've seen you use his Fairchild one. Yeah, quite I love bit. that. It's just a great sounding plugin. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting. And then we were talking about something else, though. We got off the subject. Beep, originally boop, boop, well you were originally talking about uh, oh perception and music yeah yeah so <laughs> anyways we, we don't need to go backwards but just it's fascinating to think of how different p- people hear music <clears throat> mm-hmm. and to just be able to see the forest for the trees well you were saying how if you're mixing something you don't want to get caught up in the nuts and bolts of it 
Yeah. But there is a time, uh, there is a point where you want to do that. You just need to know while you're doing it that it's affecting a whole, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you tweak this instrument, it's going to affect the vocal or whatever is the most important thing. Yeah. I heard, uh, I'm going to quote Chris Carnegie. He told me one time when I was recording with him that at every point in a song, something has to be the star, you know? So that speaks both ways. Like, you don't want to bore the listener where this, this section is, there's no, the vocal's not happening right here or whatever, but mm-hmm. the band's just playing. Well, something has to be the star there too. Otherwise, you're just like, okay, now we're, just, now we're bored. Right. Now we're hearing the band play, but nothing's the star. And same thing you said earlier, not, not everything could be the star either, because if you have more than one star, you can't, you can't focus on all of them or, you, or they just fight each other yeah. or they mush each other up or something. That gets into the, yeah, the power of contrast. Mm. If something's the star here, and you, it's like switch them ups. Somebody like, should put oh. that in a book or something. Somebody <laughs> should write a book. Yeah, I don't know. But you should have one of your books right here so we can just flash it to the camera every time we... <laughs> right? You don't have a stack of books uh, around yeah. here? And, and also like a picture of myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's that's a super important. That's almost like what Jack was saying about the you. You can only focus on three things at a time, but it's that's not cool. that the, that it's the same three throughout the whole whole song. It's like sometimes some it switches and mm-hmm. you, yeah, you should yeah just how to stay not bored. Three things that's interesting. If you think about it, that's what makes a, a three piece power rock band. Ooh, because you can hear everybody. Everybody has their point. spot and a lot of real estate to play around that's a good point yeah that's also i've had a couple three-piece bands in my life and it's super fun it's a little frustrating because if you want to layer things it's harder to do it you know yeah oh do we run tracks on this song because we want this (laughs) or or then you think no we're just going to keep it real and we're going to keep it but it's hard because Mm -hmm. everybody only there's only three instruments so not only do you not want to clutter but you also have a certain space you have to fill up like you're saying you know there's only what you sonic real estate yeah. Same thing with a live three-piece band. You all have to know your role. And like, okay, my area as a guitar player is the mid-range or whatever. Like, I got to do all that. I got to fill up all of this. And then you're like, okay, I need, maybe I need some effects to help with that. Some delays or some reverbs or something that yeah. branch out. And like, you're the bass player. You're the, you have to fill up all of this. I can't do that anymore. You know, and then you're or the drummer. You have to fill, fill up that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Because it's a chess game at that point. You're like, okay, this is my job. This is my role. Yeah. I have to do. I have to play my role. And that's my my favorite bands do that. Everybody has their role, and you don't see, you know, you don't see more than one guy trying to do one thing. If everybody has their own thing, and their own place, like even melodically, but especially mm-hmm. tonally, if the, if there's more than one guitar player in a band, you know, it's the worst when both guys are playing the same thing. And they have the same amps. You're like, what? You don't need those guys. You don't need that guy. Get rid of him. You can make more money if you get rid of that guy. You know what I mean? You yeah. want to have completely different personalities. I think mm-hmm. if you have more than one, um, more than one person playing the same instrument. Yeah. Yeah. They're when you when you think three piece power trio. That's what people refer to it as. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the most famous ones that spring to mind are the early ones, like The Police, mm-hmm. Rush. Well, technically, uh, like Zeppelin would just kind of, I'm not going to say power trio, but if you have a singer that's just the singer and then you have right. bass, guitar, and drums, that's still kind of a three-piece. Yeah. In a, in a, that's the paradigm is bass, drums, guitar. Because yeah. the vocal's always going to do You got low-end rhythm that's kind of across all the spectrums and then you have the <clears> mid-range <throat> and that's just like it. Mm-hmm. And throw the vocal on top. And Zeppelin did that great. I mean, the recordings, especially stuff that's just them jamming. Now, who's Led Zeppelin? 
I'll show them to you sometime. You'll, okay. you'll really like them. I think you'll really like Sounds them. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And the police. They're all dead now. <laughs> Zeppelin is like the the bulldog of, uh, let's let's attribute, let's put a dog on it. The black dog. The black dog. They're like the black dog. And then uh, the police would be sort of like maybe a greyhound. Yeah, fast and fast furious. And, fast and skinny and everything's pokey. Yeah. And you, you said Stuart Copeland's drumming was angular one time. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. It's perfect. It's very angular. There was a guy that, there was two different mixes. I think, oh, here's an example of working with Jack, or with Chris Lord Algae was we sent, it was the Jesse McCartney single, just right where you want me. And I've all this is I've always been this way where like I love mixing my own stuff, and whenever we've worked with another mixer, it's been because the label has been like adding oh. this guy will. It's a name recognition thing. Yeah. yeah, it was always a combination. I'm sure of of they get great results, but also yeah, he's attached to it there. now. Yeah, and Chris Lodalgy is somebody who's famous. For, he used to get points on records, so he was getting oh. like a product, like a producer point, like a percentage of the record. Most mixers, right could never ask for that but he started the success of those records ended up partially getting attributed to him so he would mm -hmm. he'd get a chunk of it so a lot of yeah. big selling records he was getting back end royalties on it when most hmm. most mixers just get paid a fee and they're done you but anyway definitely see a case for that to be made yeah his, especially his in his heyday you know like the <clears throat> mm -hmm. 90s and early 2000s he was just killing it doing all of the biggest records especially mm -hmm. in rock but also in country and all over the place. So mm -hmm. anyways, when we were making this Right Where You Want Me song, we were trying to nail the mix too and get hired for it. And Oh, while you're doing it, yeah. Yeah. So even after, this is how, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but motivated, it's a good version. But this is how motivated we were. We just, we wanted to beat Chris's mix. Yeah. And there was something about his mix that we didn't love. Yeah. Particularly me, I didn't love a couple little details about it. Mm -hmm. funnily enough it was the snare drum and <laughs> just a little teaser. so the biggest difference once we heard his mix then the bar was raised like oh shoot all right let's try to get it you know he's got this oh so you had his mix we had his mix and there. then we tried to up the game on our rough mix to who to the labels peoples yeah to present to the to the artist and the label and hope because mm -hmm. basically he completely replaced our snare uh, with bummer. a big fatty snare mm -hmm. and obviously when you hear his mixes it was a great mix but it was like the song was like you wanted a short and snappy. i had given him oh okay a real kind of cracky snare okay i gotcha which has always kind of been my thing as a drummer and what i love and he sent back this fat thing and i'm like Argh. so I sent the mix out to everybody, and the, one of the co-writers, this guy Dory, Dory LaBelle. Cool name. He had played guitar with Backstreet Boys and then became Jesse's guitar player and co-wrote oh, cool. a lot of these songs. And I remember I, we sent both mixes to everybody, including him, and he sent back two pictures, a picture of like a, a bulldog and a picture of a greyhound. <laughs> and he's like... It's, apple, it's apples and oranges. Yeah. yeah. Yours makes the song feel faster and more like yeah, yeah. snappy. And mm -hmm. then his sounds like a big fat dog. I just thought that was like the perfect response. That's pretty cool. Because he didn't, he was trying to be extremely political too. Like, it, hey, there's this and there's this. That sounds like drumming synesthesia to me. You know, <laughs> like he just saw a grain hound when you heard your yeah. snare drum. He hears things and sees animals. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing.
All right. <laughs> it is a thing. Dun, dun, dun. We've, we've uh, hit an it, hour. We have hit an hour. It was quick. I think you should do stupid questions. Should I ask you a stupid question? Yeah. Mm, I don't have any stupid questions. I'll have to... That's a stupid statement. Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> think of one. Okay, I'll ask you a stupid question. Okay. Intro Stupid questions. Describe to me, from your perspective, both My subjectively, perspective, <laughs> both subjectively and objectively. Okay. What you can choose between? I'll give you two choices. The impact that either Justin Bieber or Justin Bieber, Justin or, Bieber. or Taylor Swift Taylor. has had on me as a human. Just how you perceive the impact they've had on culture and music. Okay, not on me. Because they've had no impact on me. Other than my daughter loves... How do you know? Shake it off, shake it off. She loves that song. And, and what impact has that had on you? Has it made your life worse Makes or better? my heart happy. Okay, to see Unless she wants to hear it 15 times in a row and dance in, in the kitchen, then it's like, okay, we've heard this song. Right now it's... Uh, okay, so we're going Taylor. Right, okay. So what... Oh, we have to pick one. Yeah. I, there is a Biebs song that I like, though. I'm going to admit it on this podcast. Which one? Uh, That's the verse. What's the chorus going? Yeah. I don't know. I'm old. Um, we've talked about this song. It's so good. It's not Sorry, is it? No, it's like a newer one, I think. New, maybe not new. I can't think of the chorus. Anyways, we're talking about Boring. Taylor Swift. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. When now, my the question is, what impact has she, do I think she's had on culture? She's a big one. Culture and music. She Break writes her own down. songs, right? Kind of. Correct. That's a good question. Is that a question for her? Well, I know a secret well, about about her. Okay, but she's marketed like she writes her own songs. Right. She has her own. She does have her own. So, guitar. do you think she does? I would imagine that she at least at least co-writes most of her. Okay. Or comes in with an idea, as opposed to a lot of pop people are just yeah. lo looking for songs, right? And it's well known that a, a few of her hits in recent years have been co have been Max Martin at least co writes. Mm -hmm. Max Martin is one of, if you don't know, he's one of the <clears throat> most genius. Uh, yeah, he's a really incredible pop songwriter and kind of got famous during the early boy band years of the oh, did crossover, he? like nineteen ninety nine, two thousand. But. Just, he wrote, he wrote I think he's up there in the as many number ones or close to it as the Beatles and stuff like that. Wow! I'll um, tell you the only thing I can speak on besides my dad, my daughter dancing to Taylor Swift at home is um, her record 1982. Is that what it's called? 1982. So, yeah. Um, Ryan Adams covered the entire record, and it was he yeah. put it out. I think he did it on a whim. Like he's known to be cruising around New York at night and being on a like, whim whim also known as super good business plan what is what he's one what of he the did? top oh, selling for, artists yeah, he songs. Gonna, <laughs> on a whim meaning um he just like threw it together he always changes the band up and it's it's kind of known that he'll just bring his friends in the studio I got an idea and just bring friends in the studio and just record and all of his stuff oh, yeah. raw so you can tell it's just kind of like done yeah, he's really. You prolific can tell writer. that's how. Yeah, you can tell that's how he did the record. I think. I think they did it in like a weekend, and then they put it out, and it was out at the same time Taylor Swift's original record was out, and they were both on the charts at the same time. And it's the only time this ever happened. You've had two versions of the same record Whoa. on the 
Billboard chart, you know, super crazy. But I, his, his version of the record is so cool. And I know she likes it too, because I've seen interviews where she's like, okay. oh, just gushing and he's yeah. gushing because the songs are good. But he did that thing where he brought out, because that record is real production oriented. It's very mm-hmm. pop specific thing. Right. And then he really just kind of took a guitar and slowed some of the songs down and really brought the songs out, which is one of the coolest things you can do, I think, at doing a cover is you pull, the, pull that song out of its style to show it in a, in a simplified Yeah, reveal its core foundational guts as yeah, a song. Yeah, so I, I don't listen to Taylor Swift, but I've listened to Ryan Adams' version of Taylor Swift's record so many times because it's just so good. And some of those songs. And then it's funny, like you, I heard that record in full before I heard her record. So then I remember hearing one of those songs from her record. And going like, <laughs> they sound this like sounds the familiar. Covers of the Rhino. Yeah. Version. And I, I think, you know, whatever. I think the covers are, for me, they're, I like them better. That's the only interaction I've ever had with Taylor Swift, other than culturally, she did a big thing with Spotify, right? Wasn't she pioneering? She, didn't, she took her music off Spotify mm. to make a statement saying that they're not paying people enough. I think right. her stuff's on it now. It's on Spotify now, but she was fighting the streaming wars. Which is interesting which is cool. because, yeah, it's either cool or Adele did a similar thing, I believe. Mm-hmm. So it's, I wonder what the real motivation was because it could be- it Makes them look good, she, you know? It makes them look good, but at the same time, they know- she has such rabid fans that, and this is what mm-hmm. this is what the logic was with when Adele did that when she just wanted people to buy the record. They know like they're going to make less if it's mm-hmm. on Spotify, right. less money, more if people buy it. So they were kind of flexing their fame muscles. Uh, but I think, it also brings awareness to the the bigger picture, right? It Not does. Just them. It's I the just same wonder thing. how much of a percentage of each it was because if you're like, I'm sure, look, it made a difference. There's in their- millions of people who just want my album no matter where, and they're willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. I'll just keep it off Spotify, make more money those first couple months, and then sort of go, oh, okay, I'll yeah. put it on Spotify once actual sales taper. I would, yeah, I would like to think that it's more of a altru- uh, altru- altruistic. Yeah, altruistic. Did I say that right? It's kind of like um, when Napster first came out. And uh, Lars, the drummer from Metallica, was all up in everybody's face, and he was in court, and and they they got a ton of backlash for that. They did, but now people look back and say he was right. Lars was right because they kind of saw it coming, and the whole time everyone was like, "Oh, Metallica's are millionaires. They don't need the money Mm -hmm. from the records." And um, that's the first thing, like the cynical way to look at it. But even they were saying, like, this isn't really necessarily for us. This is for other bands that are going to be screwed by this. Yeah, it's it's just hard to hear that from him. Right, especially when it's someone that's like a blowhard, like Lars. Oh, man. I'm a he's, huge fan. He's but hard to listen that to. That guy will just talk. Yeah, but he's it, hard to listen to sometimes. And everybody, but, everybody's motives are... Yeah, you, yeah. You when know, you start looking at their motives, you, uh, There's you always can, a percentage of self-interest. Hey! There's always... It's hard It's hard to get a human being to have 100% pure... right unselfish, unself-interested even motives. There's one thing, and it's good. I mean, we're built to sort of look out for ourselves on some level before we look out for others. But in those cases, it's really kind of interesting. Anytime someone gets on a soapbox, when you're watching it, you're instantly like, wait a minute, what's really going on with this guy? Every time someone stands up and starts preaching, you know, he gets us 
little suspect. It's sort of like holding a press conference to talk about how much you've given to charity or something. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay. But if it's a big artist that's, that's world famous and they're bringing attention to an issue in the music industry. It can be good. It yeah. can be totally good. It can be self-serving and good for... Th- at the same time. At the same time. Maybe that's sort of one of the... I guess that's in life kind of what... <laughs> that's like the golden ticket in a way. If you can find a yeah, way to both. sort of give and get and it's very good. Yeah. I mean, that's what I've found here to take a left turn. That's what I've found that I really love uh, about teaching and teaching in a way that, that I don't know, give something back to me. Like I really love yeah. creating while passing knowledge down and doing it in a paradigm where mm-hmm. it's not, it's, it's in a little, it's like our little safe place. We're in the trust, the circle of trust, <laughs> yeah. the tree of trust where it, there isn't somebody else, there isn't a record label I thought or we were in the trust tree right now. <laughs> <laughs> there isn't a record label or um an A and R guy or a manager or, yeah. or even the concept of of money entering the room. Like is this gonna sell? But the idea that you're just making music and trying to enhance the your access to your own gifting and mm-hmm. learn and learn how to express yourself without any other motives than the goal of expression. I got to say, great. I love the way you teach because <clears throat> we've talked about teaching before and I, I've, I've taught mu- music in the sense of like guitar lessons because it's another thing like the second someone sees you play guitar and they see that you can play an instrument, yeah. whether it is, whatever guitar, whatever it is, there's inevitably going to be someone that's like, oh, hey, do you give lessons? I want to learn. Mm-hmm. And, I, and then when you're young, you're like, oh, cool. Someone wants to learn from me. Yeah. And then you realize you're not a teacher. <laughs> Because <laughs> you're like, oh wait, I have to pick apart everything I do, and then explain it to someone. It's not that easy. So I've always had, I've, it's cringe worthy for me when I hear teaching music or something. But the way that you approach it is completely different. <clears throat> and you get your students hands on, and you're you're more about the process and teaching them how to like um, get into that process in their own way. Really cool. Just a little. Uh, well, thanks, man. Just a little. Ding. It, it comes, the approach to teaching comes from a, um, maybe just a, pl- a place of being so conscious of, of how I'm thinking about what I do and, and then how to integrate the non-cognitive or logical aspects or non-technical parts, like how to make, how to combine the technical and emotional so that you, mm-hmm. you're using you're using technique only to serve intent, like mm-hmm. expressionistic intent. Mm-hmm. And so I, and I think I mentioned this in, in the other podcast, but just I've always felt like I need to have a way that I think about things in order to do it to do or, it, or yeah. like a an approach or just framework. being very intentional. Yeah, or framework to a work. A heart set. A heart set. Mindset and a heart set. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so I think sharing that it's so hard one for me. Like it's, it's something that I've really had to push through, like to become mm-hmm. a better singer and a better mixer. It's always been the struggle of trying to like find my own ways of thinking yeah. about it and doing it and struggling to get there. And, and then learning like, Oh, if I just think about it like this, you get there, you get, you get the results so much faster. And so mm. helping people get inside how they're perceiving things. Yeah. Yeah. So you can, that's huge. Um, like I have this little chart that I made for for uh, 
a way to think about EQ. It just has like 20K to 20 hertz, which is just human hearing sort of brackets, low end, high end. Mm -hmm. And then just some some general like words to sort of describe, explain, describe this, this, yeah, like frequency. layman's terms, like, oh, this is really barky sounding, or this is mm -hmm. real screechy sounding, or this sounds sizzly, or this is real resonant. And it's a way to sort of connect in common language yourself to the more technical scientific terms. So like a to real, the feeling of it, to the feeling of it. So you're like, Oh, that's, that's really barky sounding. And then you can go to like the 900 Hertz to mm -hmm. 1k or, you yeah. know, cause for something you might want the barky sound, right? Yeah. For this song, it's got, and I want to bark. Yeah. Or so this the, song, I want more of the sizzle thing to the vocal or whatever. Yeah. Just to help you have a, a cognitive, um, handhold. Mm hmm that relates to something that's much more visceral and connect the two. Yeah. And I love getting, helping to get inside, you know, a young artist's head and just kind of go like, well, how are you hearing music and what are you seeing? And what little bit of info can I help throw in there? That's going to maybe just expedite your process mm -hmm. to getting where you want to go. Cool. Where it's about them and helping them go there and, and equipping them in a way that's like matches their, their skill set and mm -hmm. and heart, heart set and where they want to see themselves and mm -hmm. I just I just feel like hidden within us almost like the like the the tree is hidden in the seed mm -hmm. like there's this potential what we're really passionate about and drawn to and our natural gifting is sort of like the map to where we want to go and a lot of times people question that or try to oh, wow. just pick a place they wish they were or 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 look at someone else look at someone else yeah, and and, and try to copy it or compare and <clears throat> which is not always a bad place to start right yeah i think we at a start. certain point in our in our uh in our development just parroting something copying it yeah um it's just it's one of the ways we learn and then we learn okay that helped me get here but it's not right. the, it's not the whole story yeah but I believe that part of what a, what this this like seed metaphor is that the things we're drawn to, if we're drawn to them from a non-regressive standpoint, like not from an ego standpoint, like if you're drawn to an artist because like, oh, like I want to be a singer because that singer gets a lot of chicks. Mm -hmm. So that means if I'm a singer, I'll get a lot of chicks. That's like a surface level. Maybe. Or, or even just fans, right? Like they're doing something that's working. Yeah, validation. So maybe I should copy them I so be that loved. I can work. Right. But if you love something because you feel like emotionally mm. like drawn to it, then it's not that you're it's not that copying them is necessarily um a bad maybe part of your journey, but it's more that there's something about what they create that's that's there's something about them and their creation that's that Resonating. says something about you and what you would create. Mm. And so unpacking that and going like you guys are kindred spirits. Spirits, like even though they're famous or maybe successful, they're just a person creating stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, either by themselves or in collaboration. And so, like, you can unpacking why you love something will help you get in touch with, oh, yeah. with who you are and what you're doing in such a way where you won't copy as much. You'll just go like, oh, I'm inspired by somebody mm -hmm. who's further down the road who has a similar set of tastes and is expressing similar emotions. And you recognize what they do. You recognize what they what do and is. why. Yeah. It's kind of like getting in touch with their why. Their uh, why is similar to your why. And so focusing back on your why and how to translate cool. that is sort of 
the key to getting where you're going. That's a great thing to, to tell an artist. Do you do you ask some of your students what their biggest influences are and who they listen to? And yeah, start there. I've created a, quest, a questionnaire that oh, has that's part of the questionnaire. Yeah, tons of questions in there that are about even things like what are your favorite movies or yeah. or what are the feelings you feel the most often? Top three mm-hmm. feelings. Oh wow! And then and so I look for the correlations between the two. Like if yeah. somebody's like, all I ever do is I feel depressed and I feel frustrated and angry most of the time. And then what are your three favorite movies? Oh, you know, like Tommy Boy. And <laughs> yeah. a bad grandpa, comedies, yeah. like like oh well, what's what's going on here? Like they look, they go to art to be taken away from how they feel most yeah. of the time. So I'll kind of draw those parallels and then ask questions about it, like because you'd expect maybe that they would, and mm-hmm. an, an artistic temperament would maybe you'd, you'd see like dark movies. Mm-hmm. Their favorite movies would be sort of representative of their feelings, like mm-hmm. they they're going there for some sort of comfort or. Yeah. kinship with the art they like but if you see a disconnect that to me is like a little um it's just like a little red blinking light that's like oh let's dive into what psychologically is going on yeah and what do you want to create art that brings people out of where they're at to somewhere else mm-hmm. and some people want to create art that meets you where you are like right. that's kind of where i'm my own music like i like to it be introspective and sort of go into the feeling. So I'll be attracted to music that's sort of a mirror of what I feel mm-hmm. as opposed to wanting to escape how I feel and yeah. go somewhere else. So anyways, that, I think that's really important is to sort of unpack that, that kind of stuff. Don't you give up. No, 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 Let me love you. That's the one I was thinking of. That's a great melody. That's the Bieber song I like. Yeah. Just so everybody knows that I do like one Justin Bieber song. I dig that. Great that's song. a very like, I think as a songwriter, the moment you hear that, you're like, that's that was sitting out there. Yeah, yeah. And they the grabbed it. Because it was- Those little it's a, melodies. It's that, a pattern. Yep. Like, and it's a lot of times it's like an obvious, almost an obvious or feels obvious right. when you hear it. Like, how come that, how come I didn't think of that? It's right there. Seems yeah, but then it's it's the juxtaposition of that lyric with that melody. <clears throat> oh yeah, how they set good. it up. It's mm-hmm. like nailed yeah. it, nailed it. Yeah, should we rap? Let's rap. Put a bow on this baby. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh. Oh, I was gonna start rapping. See you guys next time. Peace. And it's over like that. Good night.